It's the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels. I remember those men who did not make it back. They are with me always, always right at my back. They whisper to me to not forget them, to live every day as if it were my last. I feel the pain of their loss, and I know I have to go on. There is nothing I can do about them being gone. I lived and they died. What can I do? So I stand at attention to offer a salute. Don't wish me a happy Memorial Day. It's a day of reflection for me. In your life, stop and remember them. Because we can't forget them. That's a poem called Memorial Day, found in the book The Broken Mirror of Memory, Iraq and Other Tales by Joe Soul. Joel is an Iraq war veteran, author, peace activist, and also a bit of a psychonaut and spiritual seeker. He has turned his trauma into motivation. He served on five boards of corporations, and he is joining me tonight to tell his story about joining the military, his experiences in the military, and ultimately his journey of recovery from PTSD and making it back into civilian life. Joe, thanks for being with me. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. So uh, I, I read your book, and it was fascinating because there are a lot of different little intricacies throughout it that I was not expecting. So I guess, what was your motivation for joining the military to begin with? Uh, my motivation was the 9-11 attacks as well as money for college. Is money for college? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, college, <laughs> I have a bachelor's and a master's degree. And I'll tell you what, I'm not so sure that was actually worth it. Mm. So when you say September 11th, um, where were you on that day? What made you think I, about joining? I was in my freshman history class um, and we heard about it on the radio the TVs were out there, been a fire on campus and my blood immediately ran cold. And I knew that I, uh, that I was going to sign up. Yeah. Yeah. Were you in college or high school? I was in high school. Oh, were you? Okay. So I was in my freshman year of college when September 11th happened. Uh, I think it was like my second or third day of college. <laughs> so quite a wake up call for somebody going through all of that. So, when you were experiencing all of this, I mean, my, my first impressions of September 11th was I wasn't really buying the story. And how did you make it through the next four years? Because you went through high school. And then what, what happened? You basically joined the military as soon as you got out of high school, right? As soon as I got out of high school, I signed up. It was yeah. actually shortly thereafter. I worked yeah. a few jobs before, tried tried to go to community college and then said, oh, I'm signing up. And away I went. Yeah. I mean, I can totally relate to all of that. But I, I think there's something a little bit more than, than September 11th involving this, right? Because what you spoke a little bit about NAFTA. And so tell us a little bit about where you're from and what the situation was like. Well, I'm from a town called Hanoi in upstate New York. And there were, I believe, three factories in Hanoi all closed down. Oh, yeah. There was one factory in the 
in the next town over that was still operational. And there just wasn't a lot of work, a lot of opportunity. Um, as far as I'm concerned, NAFTA had gutted our, our physical industry. And yeah. given that, there was very little opportunity. I had a child on the way at the time when I joined, and I said, I, I, I better do something to make money, so I joined the Army. That yeah. was really the only, the only option. Yeah, yeah. I grew up on uh, Long Island in New York, so I'm sure you know where that is. It's east mm -hmm. of New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've taken many trips upstate New York and uh, throughout New England, and you drive through literal ghost towns. Yeah. It is frightening up there. It really is. And so that those two experiences, 9-11 and the degradation of pretty much livelihoods in upstate New York made you join the military. So what were some of the first impressions that you had when you walked in for the first time? I mean, you referenced all of the all of the ways that you had to be essentially qualified medically and psychologically. My impressions. Yeah. I, I remember what my impressions were just, Oh, what did I, what did I get myself into? <laughs> like, yeah, I bet. It comes to comes to mind. Yeah. And, uh, I just, I just went with the flow and I didn't know it, but I was going along with the current of history and that, that ended up landing me in Iraq. So, yeah. yeah. What, what it was who quoted uh go with the flow and make the dough. Gosh, you're asking the wrong guy. Oh, it was in your book. <laughs> I thought, oh, who, I thought who your dad had that? said that. <laughs> My dad said that. Go with the flow to make the dough. See yeah. now they're trick questions. Now they're no, trick questions. Just... Am I supposed to remember everything that's in my book? No, of course not. <laughs> No, I'm just trying to make a reference for you there. Yeah. So Go I, with the flow to make the dough. Yep, that's, that's right. My, that's my dad. Go with the flow to make the dough. <laughs> I, um, I can only imagine what it was like uh, to really meet the drill sergeant for the first time. Because you, you have a bunch of quotes in there from, who was it? Drill sergeant Sides, was that it? Drill Sergeant Sides, that was our senior drill instructor, yes. Yeah, I can only imagine what that experience must have been like. Because for me, if somebody started to talk to me that way, one, I would laugh at some of the things he said. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'd be like, no, <laughs> get out of my face. What are you saying this to me for, you animal? <laughs> at boot camp was one of the funniest places you weren't allowed to laugh. I bet. I it bet. Was one of the funniest places you were not allowed to. There was not a lot of chuckling, but there should have been. Yeah, right, right. A, was there ever an opportunity where you like somebody told you something or he yelled at you saying something and you just had the roughest time trying to hold in a laugh? <laughs> it was um it was when they brought in uh they used to have these cakes called moon pies. I don't uh -huh. know if you remember them. Sure. They brought them in and set them on a stool. And said, gentlemen, our mission today is to protect these radioactive moon pies. They're WMDs, and the Taliban would love to get their hands on them. And we had to pull security for these moon pies. And as the drill sergeant is explaining that mission to us, he starts cracking up. 
<laughs> and everyone so... else starts cracking up because it was so ridiculous. Yeah, right. We're gonna we're gonna guard these moon pies, and he starts he starts going out of character. Sure. And we all laughed. He said, "Lock it up, lock it up, at ease, <laughs> be quiet." And he stifled <laughs> himself. But he almost he almost broke character there for a moment. <laughs> I can only imagine that. And so everybody probably had to really try to regain themselves. I mean, so we could work blue on the last call podcast with Chris Michaels. So one of these little gems that he said was, uh, you should have been the load your mama swallowed. I like that one. Uh, and then the next one was the best part of you ran out of your mama's pussy and down her ass crack. I thought that wasn't too, <laughs> too bad either. Yes, there was, there was quite a lot of that. Yeah, I bet. I bet. What do you think would be something uh, that you're grateful for, for going through boot camp? Because the way you write it, it seems as though that even though it was an extremely rough experience, uh, you still gained a lot from it. I gained a lot from it. I gained the ability to deal with stupid bullshit. <laughs> and yeah. that's very useful later in life although i didn't know it at the time uh-huh. but there's a lot of stupid bullshit in life so when you've been subjected to well, i can't think of another word for it, that that level of torture uh-huh. for lack of a better word yeah. um, all the other bullshit in life tends to tends to be a little less yeah it's all perspective, right? It's all yeah. about where you've been and then what you could potentially deal with. Right. And so right. that enabled you to interact with a lot of other bullshit that a lot of other people probably could not deal with. Well, we don't know that we're there. What's that? We don't know whether whether or not we can deal with a certain level of bullshit until it's there with us. Until it's eyeball deep, right? <laughs> So tell us how you eventually got into Iraq and through boot camp. What were you assigned to? What were your duties? What unit? And what were your first impressions when you got off the plane? Um, I got out of boot camp in July 2006, went to my advanced individual training. And then I was assigned to the 77th Combat Sustainment Support Battalion. They're out of Fort Totten, New York. I was stationed upstate. I had joined the reserves. And I was stationed in a town called Horseheads. When at drill, they came around during a formation and said, does anyone want to volunteer for a mobilization? Some of the soldiers asked, where is it to? Where's the, where's the mobilization to? The sergeant said, it could be Iraq. It could be Afghanistan. It could be Alaska. We don't know. Yeah. So I signed up for that mobilization, and that's how I got into Iraq. Um, yeah. My impression stepping off the plane was a wave of heat hitting me in the face <laughs> like a fist. I believe it. Yeah. And turning to my buddy, Dan, and saying, look at all the sand. It's unbelievable. And we couldn't stop laughing about how much sand there was. There wasn't a tree anywhere. Yeah. We literally couldn't stop laughing at the amount of sand. It was, it was comical. We'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. The only thing I could compare that to is living in Arizona. 
Hmm. I lived in Arizona for about two years. Not a lot of sand, a lot of crag. Hmm. Um, and the first year I was there, they had about two, two and a half weeks of 120 degree temps. Mm-hmm. And you would think at night, maybe this will drop a little. No, no. It went from 120 to 112. <laughs> it just was impossible. <laughs> Absolutely impossible to deal with. Yeah. How did they treat you when you first got there? It seemed as though that it was business as normal and you better get with the program uh, and, and kind of deal with it from what I read. When we um, when we got to Iraq itself, yeah, yep, I remember um, one of the briefing NCOs saying, "Welcome to welcome to Southwest Asia, gentlemen." And he went through a series of things I don't remember, and we were assigned CHUs or containerized housing units, yeah, in Living Area One on Cobb Adder Talil Air Base. And to be honest, the tour itself is very very blurry in my memory. That's why the book is called the broken mirror of memory. Right. Because there's things, there's entire periods that are blacked out from my memory. Interesting. Now, why do you think that is? Is that just a coping mechanism or? Uh, My VA therapist would call it a coping mechanism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it is? I think it, I think it's a coping mechanism. Um, Yeah. Writing the book helped me get a lot of things down and out of me, and uh, talking with some of my former commanders and sergeants for the book, you know, to get their perspective, reminded me of a lot of things that I had either purposely or unconsciously forgotten or blocked right. out. So that was an interesting part of writing the book. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Other perspective. Because I can completely understand why that coping mechanism is in place not just for you but probably for a lot of people um when they experience traumatic events you've somehow got to forget those events one way or another um either through uh, mechanisms like therapy or um or or going through psychological evaluations or psychedelic uh and journeys yes yes right. <laughs> so, psychedelic journeys are very useful they are i i want to get to all of that yes. um but there was something in there the rocket slammed into the ground with a sound like a train hitting a fireworks factory now that was what i think is your first real experience with somebody shooting at you with a purpose. Yes. How did that just walk us through that experience? If you can remember, I only have a few snippets of it Yeah. and it's broken up into about three snippets. There's the sound of the rocket coming in. There is the sound of the impact. There's memories of smoke and flame and screaming and yelling for mm. combat lifesavers. There's a memory of me running with my combat lifesaver bag. And then that's about all I remember. Yeah. Now, does your training put you on autopilot so that you don't even think you just do? I think so. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely think so. 
Because I couldn't imagine going through that without any training. Yeah, it would be it would be hard without training, I think. But yeah, right. I think I think for the Iraqi civilians who go through it without training every day, they gotta be some tough people. Yeah. And then you bring up a girl that you had met and you had given her a band-aid. Just tell us about that experience. Did that really affect you? Because I think I mean that's a dumb question to ask, but I mean I thought that story was extremely impactful. Yeah, the girl the girl was missing a finger. I don't yeah. know why. This was on um, a patrol outside the wire. Um, right. And she was missing she was missing a finger. And she stuck her finger up or what was left of it and you know, Mista Mista and she circled around it, circled around it. And one of the guys says, Oh, you know, just give her a band aid. She oh. did she didn't need a band aid. It was already it was already gone. I don't know whether it was congenital or if she had lost her finger in some sort of attack or what, but she definitely knew she was different than the other kids. And that kind of broke her heart a little bit. Sure. Do you think that experience is what really potentially triggered you to make, to start looking at the Iraq war differently? I don't think it was that experience, but it certainly played a part. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of experiences that made me start rethinking the Iraq war. Yeah. Um, from the three soldiers being killed in that mortar attack that I apparently blacked from my memory that my commander had to verify for me. Wow. To the seven soldiers killed in the helicopter crash in 2008 that I didn't block from my memory. We were only there for their dignified transfer ceremony when their coffins went by, but that made a profound impression on me. And uh, I think that I think it was a, a cumulative experience that sort of led me to oppose the Iraq war, even while serving there. Right. It was an interesting place to be indeed. I can, I can only imagine, because you must have run across all kinds of people, not just civilians. You ran across some, what I consider to be maybe bizarre individuals from some place called Triple Canopy. Correct. What can you tell us about those guys? They were contractors, uh, the Triple Canopy. They were all former special forces, from what I understand about the company. They were they were, they were, they were mercenaries, right? And they had a presence on base. They would get ammunition from us, and they even had a little. We even had a little impromptu fight where we, where they wanted to demonstrate their knowledge of hand-to-hand combat versus ours, and we naturally got our asses kicked. Oh, God. Really? They would but, do that? <laughs> well, it was, it, was, it was fun. We were, okay. We were, we were bored. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you would do something like that. I can only imagine how quick that was. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a quick takedown. I got, <laughs> really? I got taken down real quick, and I was like, yep, I'm done. I'm done. Go, <laughs> Go and then all of a sudden, blue sky. How did yeah, that happen? <laughs> How did that happen exactly? Yeah, right. So, uh, but did you have any idea of what they were there for, or no? I believe they were there for diplomatic security missions uh, okay. and escorting VIPs. That's yeah. that's my understanding. I believe they had a similar mission to Blackwater, but Blackwater operated further up north in the Baghdad area. Right. 
So, yeah. So that also leads me to where you started to to develop a lot of this guilt that you bring forward throughout the book, um, especially when it comes to your PTSD. Now, what you said was that you're basically responsible for divvying up ammunition for everybody, right? So you did, did you ever really see combat? I saw combat in the sense of the very close mortar attacks. I right. was not shot at, no. Right, right. So that just says, even though you're, you, you haven't experienced, let's say, a firefight, because maybe that's the right term. I'm not sure if that's the right, right. term. It still impacts everybody over there. So you just handing out ammunition, as you're ordered to do, still hurt your psyche on some level. That creates what the VA would call a moral injury, where I was doing something that was contrary to my ingrained values, causing mm. the deaths of others. And it took a lot of time at different Buddhist meditation retreats with Buddhist monks to come to some kind of peace with that. I still don't have it, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. What, would you... I guess, I guess what makes you feel that way? What made you feel that way? What made you generate that guilt? Well... I'm a person that truly, I'm not sure, obviously it existed prior to my tour and during my tour, but it really developed after my tour. I'm a person that doesn't believe in harming others, especially mm. on a large scale with weapons of war and bombs and that sort of thing. And working in the bomb yard, you know, working in the ammunition supply point was contrary to those values while, mm. while they were sort of in their gestation while they were still sort of developing. So that created a real cognitive dissonance for me. Yeah. Um, the PTSD comes from the mortar attack. I know that for sure. Um, sure. Nightmares come from the mortar attack and not being able to help those soldiers, even though we could hear them screaming. So yeah. do I consider myself a combat veteran because of that experience? Yes. Yeah, of course. Do I wish that I had gotten into a firefight and really earned my, you know, earned my stripes, so to speak? Yes and no. Yeah. I do, and then I'm glad that I didn't have to experience that. So. Yeah. No, I, I can kind of understand that. Um, me, not having ever joined the military, my bo both of my grandfathers were in the military during World War II. Um, one grandfather was in the CBs. And another one was with the 9th Armored Division, drove an armored car, so he was part of reconnaissance. Mm. And um, my grandfather that was in the Seabees, he never saw combat either. He was more of an engineer. They stationed him on Hawaii, and he made repairs and made sure the generators were working and all of that stuff. And he has a real guilt for not being in a firefight. Um, he, he was really broken up about that because he joined to be in firefights. And when I, when he told me all of that, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm kind of glad you didn't. Yeah, <laughs> get to yeah. firefights. I, um, I volunteered to go to Iraq to try to, to try to earn that experience. I volunteered for patrols to try to earn that experience. Wow. I got one patrol and it was uneventful. Yeah. Thankfully. Now, yeah, right. Looking back, I'm thankful it was uneventful because sure. I could have been grievously wounded or killed. 
Oh, for sure. Um, my other grandfather in the reconnaissance unit, he drove an awful six-wheeled armored car. It was an M8 Greyhound. So it had a, a 37 millimeter on that. So imagine driving around with a 37 millimeter, uh, not having any fun ammunition to go along with it. No, um, what is it? HVAC? No, not HVAC. Um, HVAP, high velocity anti-tank, I think that's what they called it during World War II or any of that stuff. Um, and he, after his experience, he said to my father and my uncle, War should be fought in certain occasions, but the Vietnam War was not one of those occasions. So if you want to go to Canada, then you can go to Canada. Um, And what what situation brought him to that opinion was he was on body detail. So during the Battle of the Bulge, you know, there there are a lot of awful scenes uh, and a lot of them happen to be frozen. So he told a story of where a group of them would get behind a six-wheeled truck. Uh, and the truck would just basically go very, very slowly, and they would pick up the frozen bodies. And he says, one time uh, I picked up a body, and the whole top of the head fell out, and all sorts of other things fell out. And that really affected him. Ever since then, he's, nah, no. Nah. But eventually he made it to uh, Czechoslovakia and uh, blew up rivers with dynamite to go fishing. So I guess he had some fun over there. (laughs) So you got back home, right? Yeah. Were you elated to get back home? Was there an anxiety? What was that like? I was thrilled. I was thrilled to get back home. And um, there's a lot in the book, you know, that we didn't cover about Iraq itself, obviously, but um, no, please go into anything. I want to try to fit as much possible. So bring it up. Um, well, like you wrote I, for Stars and Stripes, too. Yeah, that's right. I wrote for Stars and Stripes about the don't ask, don't tell policy. That created quite a stir. Um, yeah. Um, what was that about? Tell us. That was about the unjust policy, in my view, of don't ask, don't tell, which was still a policy back then. And I felt it was unjust. And uh, I got responses from all over theater saying, you know, you're wrong to, yes, I agree to, it was sort of a mixed bag of responses, but, uh, well, hold on a sec. What was the exact controversy of don't ask, don't tell? What was the, what was the big sticking point with that? Uh, the big sticking point for me was the partners of same sex, uh, couples, uh, excuse me, the partner, the partners of soldiers in same sex relationships couldn't get the flag at the funeral was really the, uh, the big, um, the big sticking point for me. They really they couldn't be um they couldn't be recognized uh, they couldn't join um gold star families for instance as far as i know um as yeah as far as i know and there were i felt it to be a slap in the face so that's why i wrote the article sure what 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 kind of reaction were you expecting from that and what did you get I don't know what kind of reaction I was expecting. What I got was a lot of support from my unit and a lot of people from around theater writing and telling me how wrong I was and this and that and the other thing. And that was okay. You know, yeah. I wasn't entitled to their opinion on that. Uh, of course, it's gone now, so which it, you know, which I think is a good thing. Right, sure. I, I didn't know that they were not able to get a flag at a funeral. Well, if you, you know, if you're the spouse of 
a soldier serving in Iraq and you're in a same-sex relationship and you're killed, you won't be recognized at the official funeral. Yeah. You won't get the death benefits if you're married, for instance, in Massachusetts, I think was one of the only places that a same-sex couple could get married at the time. That is insane. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't get the death benefits, for instance. Wow. Oh, wow. There was, I mean, there was so many, so many things with that policy that were just, you know, messed up. Yeah. Now, I have to take a side, uh, a side quest, I guess. What do you think of how the military is moving with, I, I guess, I guess some of the, 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 the pride, I, I don't want to call it propaganda, but, um, you know, during Pride Month, they have all of those, I guess, photos and, and highlights of individuals that are gay or transgender in the military. What do you think of all of that? Because from my experience, it got a lot of backlash. Yes, it did get a lot of backlash. I think the intention behind it was good. I think the result may not have been as good. Uh-huh. Um, and as a peace activist, I'm not really concerned with fighting wars. Yeah. But I think maybe the military should focus on being the military and have that be a side note. I think I think you can be open-minded, and I think you can be a, be so open-minded that your brain falls out. <laughs> and, and Yeah, yeah. I think we're getting to the point where we're being so open-minded that our brains fall out. I know, I know. I, it's funny, I was speaking with a, um, a transgender friend of mine. Uh, and, and we were talking about all kinds of, of politics and I, I made reference to the pride flag and, and my thoughts on the colors of it, uh, relating to chakra. Mm. And, um, and I said, ultimately none of this matters to me. Like just be a good person. Don't be an asshole and be witty, have something fun to say, right? right. And do your job. Just, just don't, just be a regular person. Like, what? Why does this have to be such a, a huge, huge deal? Um, well, actually, with pride celebrations, it was because they couldn't even be themselves, right? So you know, right. um, they needed to be out there and visible to be able to establish themselves as the legitimate human beings that they were and are. Sure. Yeah. And I find value in that. Of course. Um, do I think the politicization and the corporatization of Pride events are a good thing? Not necessarily. Um, I think a lot of companies are jumping on a bandwagon and making money off of Pride now when they when they certainly wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. Or no, years ago. <laughs> absolutely not. I think, it's a, I think it's a money grab for them. Yeah. So let's go back to Iraq. Uh, you said we didn't bring up some topics. So what is the most significant one that you can think of? I, I, maybe maybe what, what was the one thing that you said, I've got to get out of here? Like, I'm done. Um, the one thing that I remember consciously I have to get out of here was the ramp ceremony for the seven soldiers killed in, in the CH-47 crash. I said, that should be me in that box. I've mm. got to get out of here. I've, I've got to survive. I've got to get out of here. So it was a helicopter crash. So tell us about that. What exactly happened? A helicopter crashed uh, 
somewhere near near Antolular Base Combat or where I was stationed. And our first sergeant had arranged for us to go to their dignified transfer ceremony. And he said, this is something you'll never forget. Mm. And he was right. Um, there's a poem in the book called Stuck in These Boots where I sort of elaborate on my feelings on the crash and the ramp ceremony and that sort of thing. Um, but it essentially says, I'm stuck in my boots and I can't move, so I'll stand here saluting on this tarmac in the middle of the night for the rest of my life. Wow. That, that to me was the most impactful event from Iraq that drove me to, number one, want to get out of there. Mm -hmm. and also made me wish that I had died in their place because nothing that I could do in my life would compare with something they may have been able to do had they survived and I had not. Yeah. And that's part of survivor's guilt. My therapist says it, I can, I can see that. Um, I, I, to give you some inside baseball about myself, I'm a gamer. So I like uh, historical gaming, you know, dice and pushing cardboard counters around a board and uh, mm. insulting my opponent and all that stuff. Um, one of the books that I read when I was a teenager was called The Forgotten Soldier by Guy Sayer or Guy Sayer. Mm. Um, it tells of a story of a German soldier started off in a supply company uh, that was delivering supplies to Stalingrad. And before they actually reached Stalingrad, uh, it was surrounded. And that was the end of that. Ultimately ends up in uh, the Gross Deutschland Division, which is an elite unit. Uh, but if you're in the Western Front or the Eastern Front, if you have an armband with a name on it, like Gross Deutschland, you were considered SS and shot. Mm. So he that, that is a riveting book. That book completely changed my mind on war uh, and, and about being gung-ho about it uh you know gaming and rolling dice is one thing uh being a student of history and reading into all of these events this is another thing but but actually experiencing it that that book really changed my life and he brings up a lot of what you just brought up uh survivor's guilt and ultimately in the book he says you have to cope with it in a way that it was just their time and it's not your time yet yeah so you just have to give up. Yeah. That's the, like, that's the only thing that I can do. Yeah. And continue to live your life. Yeah. Which leads us to you getting back home. So tell us about that. You got home. You had a big old fat bank account. And I did. Right? So what were you going to do? I was going to drink. And that's exactly <laughs> what I did. Yes. Five Long Island iced teas per night. At least. Are you insane? <laughs> I am. I was. Wow. I was insane. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous will talk about the insanity of alcoholism. And yeah. I certainly I certainly met that definition at that time. Sure. Sure. So you were doing was that per night or was that just every time you went out? That was that was per night for oh. a long time. I don't remember exactly how long, but it was Five Long Islands a night, seven beers a night, a bunch of shots in between that and there. Oh. And um, a lot of um, a lot of synthetic marijuana called K2. Yeah. 
and uh, it took me a long time. It took me it took me ten years to uh, to stop drinking and to stop doing drugs and to and to get sober. Um, yeah. I don't consider psychedelics drugs in the Thank you. sense. Thank you very much. Um, Being a fellow psychonaut, um, I can tell you there there was a life before and after taking a psychedelic and it's it's not a lot of people that haven't experienced that they don't understand that statement um so tell us about your first experience you're 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 going on a bender all night you're blowing through your bank account what happened for you to say hey wait a minute this this has got to change it was gradual but i got tired of the puking (laughs) <laughs> oh it's really yeah yeah it's really what it is i got i got tired of the hangovers so i got tired of puking while i was still drunk and then puking again in the morning i got tired of the dry heaves and i said this has to this has to change but yeah. my friend it was oddly enough the same day we adopted a cat from the shelter an orange tabby named oliver who's mentioned in the book um mm-hmm. it was the same night we got that cat our friend stopped by and said, hey, I just got four tabs of acid. Do you want to do acid with us? And I said, yeah, I do. And that night I became one with the universe. I was, ah. sitting, I was sitting in a chair and the chair became the floor and the floor became the wall <laughs> and the wall became the ceiling. And yeah. One with the chair and I was one with everything and everything was okay again. Right. And it it changed my perspective on the oneness of the universe that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So it was a really impactful day for me. Not only did I get a wonderful cat I had for seven years, but um, I got to experience the oneness of the universe. So it was a very interesting day. How how many tabs? Just one. Just one. Just one. It was my first time. So just one. My first time. Oh, what a mistake I made. (laughs) I I went to my first rave out in california out in ontario california uh and i took two tabs so i probably took them at seven at night i didn't actually start to feel normal until three or four the next afternoon Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um that was like taking a cheese grater to my emotions and then trying to pour them back in yeah so i did not have a good trip Mm. um however i will say this two weeks following that I never felt better in all of my life. Um, I I felt connected. I saw synchronicity everywhere. I was Mm -hmm. manifesting things. Mm -hmm. Did you experience anything like that? I certainly did. I certainly felt the afterglow. What really got me later on was magic mushrooms. And that didn't occur till. I mean, I had taken them a few times, but the real benefits of them didn't occur until I was living on the West Coast. Uh-huh. And I don't know if they just have better mushrooms out here or what it is, <laughs> but you really feel the oneness and that oneness stays with you yeah. after the, after the, you know, after the mushrooms. Sure. Sure. How did you, how did you come across them? What, what made you first try them and what made you realize they're a lot better um, than what all of the stereotypes are? are really throwing out there well it was a book called shroom and if i have it around here i'll pick it up and tell you who wrote it but Uh it was a book called shroom 
Although we are here to promote the broken mirror of memory. Let's not That's right. That Let's, yes. It was, it was a book called <laughs> Shroom, and it goes over the cultural history of the magic mushroom, which I found um, really enlightening. Yeah. And that got me to, to really to really become a serious psychonaut, not someone who's doing it to get screwed exactly. up. Exactly. But someone who's doing it to improve their mental state, to improve their connection with the universe, to expand their consciousness, not just, hey, let's get fucked up tonight. Yeah, yeah. So you still do this? Um, I don't so much anymore. Uh -huh. um, it's usually a random occurrence. Sure. If it, if it if it happens, so it's not a regular thing that I do. I don't do microdosing or anything like that. Um, right. But I enjoy taking heroic doses. <laughs> um, when it's randomly available, I will take heroic doses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to be into that a lot, um, and I remember during those heroic doses, I couldn't even look at the lock screen on my phone. Mm -hmm. It was just too much for me to get into um but i i will say this uh, when i was regularly doing um anywhere between microdosing and the heroic doses on the weekends um everything made a lot of sense i was i was truer to myself i was truer to my emotions um and some of the things i learned about myself regarding past lives and energy was extremely profound. Did you ever have any of those kinds of situations? Mostly energy, not the past lives, although I will say that I am envious of your past life experience. Um, <laughs> I can't say that I've had one myself. Yeah. And, um, but really it was the oneness with the universe that really got me. Um, a rock spoke to me on the, on the Chehalis Western Trail out here in washington state and i picked it up i still have that rock i'm looking at it now actually from across the room um i picked it up because it talked to me so there's definitely a connection with nature that you don't have otherwise that's just beyond the veil oh, some people sure. will say oh you know you're just getting screwed up and that's why it's happening no i believe it changes the way our brains perceive reality in a way that is true yeah in a way that in a way that elevates our consciousness. I'm so glad someone wanted to talk about psychedelics. Cause the oh, man. The podcasts I've been on yeah. have avoided that half of the book like the plague. Why? <laughs> I don't know. So here's what's funny. When I was doing it regularly, I would see synchronicity and geometry everywhere. I would be able to look at a bush and just see how the leaves would form on that bush and be able to connect to the mathematics and geometry of that bush. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it got so much so that I would arrange my food in perfect symmetrical patterns. They look beautiful. I never arranged places, uh, plates of food as well as I did when I was, <laughs> when I was doing psychedelics <laughs> regularly. <laughs> you, have to, you have to get in with that sacred geometry. I you am a do. huge fan of sacred geometry. Absolutely. So what another another experience I had, um, I, I met um, Tim Ferriss. Hmm. Uh, you know who he is? He wrote the uh, four hour work week. Tim Ferriss. No, I can't say I'm familiar with him, but I'm looking him up. Sure. So Tim Ferriss wrote a book called The Four Hour Work Week. Uh, it was originally supposed to call, be called The One Hour Work Week, but his editor and publisher said, no, it's, that's too ridiculous. It's got to be at least mm -hmm. four hours. Okay, fine. Right. Right. Um, 
I met Tim Ferriss and Neil deGrasse Tyson um, in the Hamptons, and it was for Neil deGrasse Tyson's show, um, and he interviewed uh, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, from what he wrote his PhD, or at least this is what he told me, what he wrote his PhD paper on, was the usefulness of psychedelics. Mm. Um, and he made comparisons to regular, um, I guess, uh, regular pharmaceutical drugs, mm -hmm. uh, coping with stress and, and PTSD versus psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And he basically made the analogy that when you take these drugs from the pharmaceutical companies, you're rewiring your brain and you're going through therapy to reconnect and, and reestablish and redirect the neural network, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not triggered by certain objects. And this will work for as long as you take the drugs. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you stop taking the drugs, that's when it all unravels and you go back to square one. So yeah. essentially, you, you only retain 20% of the work you do while you're taking these drugs. But if you're taking a psychedelic the neural networks remain 80% of the time. So you're rewiring yourself. You're coping with all of this and it's sticking eight times out of 10. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought that was amazing. Have you had that kind of experience? I, I believe I have, I think it has to do. And again, this may just be me being a crazy hippie. No, no. But I think it has to do with the similarity of the mycelial network and the network of neurons in the human brain. I mm. think that there's something, there's something there. There's a reason why those, those drugs, quote unquote, have been used by shamans for yeah. millennia. Yeah. They, they, they knew something we didn't and our industrialized society is doing everything it can to keep that away. I mean, how can you, how can you make a mushroom illegal? It's growing probably 200 feet from my house right now. I bet there's a psychedelic mushroom somewhere yeah. growing. Um, maybe not right now, but certainly during the rainy season. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and because there's all kinds of mushrooms. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, it's just like making marijuana illegal. How can you, how can you make a plant illegal? It's just the hubris of humanity never ceases to amaze me. We're going to make this thing that grows out of the earth against the law. Who, who, who do you who do you think you are, Jack? Yeah, <laughs> it's it is, just hilarious to me. It, it's crazy. It really is crazy. I personally think it's a way to keep the uh, the vibrations of awareness down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I genuinely think that there has been a shift in consciousness. Um, and, and I will attribute, for better or worse, I will attribute that shift in consciousness. Uh, to Donald Trump. And that mm -hmm. shift in consciousness goes both ways, right? It goes from the left side and it goes from the right side. Mm -hmm. The left side realized that there's something wrong. So they started to dig in every nook and cranny that they could possibly find some kind of dirt. The right side realized in 2020 that something is wrong. So that shift in consciousness is happening and I think they're still trying to stymie that effort as much as they possibly can. Well, you know, I would, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I don't really 
pay attention to a lot of politics. I really try yeah. not to because it's so toxic. Yeah. I would say that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I would agree with my friend, uh, Jiggy Krishmerte, who is a wonderful philosopher, um, mm. who said that the only true revolution that can happen is not political, it's not social, it's the revolution of consciousness. Yes. And that's truly what I believe the powers that be, no matter what side they're on. I think when they get behind closed doors, they're all buddy-buddy anyway. Um, I think that that's what they want to avoid is the revolution in consciousness. When we realize we don't need these rich people in $5,000 suits anymore. No. They don't want us to realize that because they have it pretty good. Yeah. It may not even be conscious, but on some level, they don't want us to realize that they're not really needed, are they? No, they really yeah. aren't. Hey, let me ask you a question now that we talk about this. You were by the ziggurat in Iraq, correct? correct. Do you There's think that of... had some kind of impact on your consciousness? Oh, it certainly did. That thing must be, I don't know exactly how old, and having a history degree from the Evergreen State College, that's sort of embarrassing for me. I don't know exactly how old, but oh, yeah. I believe it's older than the pyramids. Right. Uh, the thought that we could build something like that without the use of heavy industrial machinery was fascinating to me. Yeah. And it got me looking into the Anunnaki and ancient aliens sure. and all sorts of things like that. And just seeing it in person um, was something to take your breath away. It, it, it truly was amazing. I would, I would, I would compare it to seeing the pyramids. It was wow. something amazing. Yeah. And we were always worried a rocket would hit it. <laughs> <laughs> really? But none ever did, right? Uh, not while I was there, no. Yeah, wow. See, that's that's also very interesting because I, I'm probably uh, a little bit of an alternative history buff. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? I, I cannot. I, I used to be an art history minor until I realized how much it was negatively impacting my GPA. Then I completely <laughs> dropped it. Um, and and we talked about things like the Ziggurat of Ur, um, the the pyramids of Egypt. Uh, there's a place called uh, Chatalhoyuk in Turkey, mm -hmm. which is technically what it's it's anachronistic. It's not supposed to exist. Right, right, right. According to the official timeline, yet here we are. Gobekli <laughs> Tepe, like they say on Coast to Coast AM all the time. That's Go right. Gobekli right. Tepe. Oh man, I need a pan flute now for talking about Coast to Coast. <laughs> he always <laughs> plays that music. So, um, what's interesting about Chattahoyuk is there are creatures uh, on some of these carvings that are found on Easter Island. Mm -hmm. How do you square that circle? Easter Island is off the coast of South America. You have Chattahoyuk in Turkey on top of a mountain. So to tell me that, you know, there wasn't a global community is just bizarre to me. I, I don't think you can square that circle unless you break out of the paradigm. Yeah. And I'm not saying that everything that ancient aliens or coast to coast yeah true all i'm saying is there's more to history than we know i believe it goes back further than we know mm -hmm. and um i'm also a huge fan of alternative history so to speak um, yeah and i think it goes further back than we know and i think we were more advanced than we know oh 100 percent um when i lived in arizona um i i found what i would probably say 
are ancient ruins all over the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a picture. I'll actually send you a couple of pictures that I found. Oh, please do. Um, so one of the most magnificent drives I've ever taken, and I'd never want to do it again because it's so long, is from Phoenix to San Diego. And you drive through all of these Indian reservations and you see mountains of boulders that perfectly fit together. And you're mm-hmm. going, I don't care what you have to say. That's not wind, rain, and erosion. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're fitting perfectly together where you couldn't fit a penny between them. If exactly, you exactly. Have you run it? So you live on the West Coast then, right? I do, yes. So have you run across any of that? I don't know what part you live. I but... can't say that I have. Uh-huh. Um, I certainly wish that I have or I certainly wish that I had, but uh-huh. um, I have not, unfortunately. Your uh, your experience is broader in that area <laughs> than mine, unfortunately, and I'm super gel. Well, um, I'll, I'll send you pictures. Um, one place you should look to is um, apparently Montana. Supposedly hmm. in Montana, there are miles of antediluvian stone walls that you have to go to all of these parks. They're really in obscure areas. And it's just these massive blocks and massive walls that just line the landscape everywhere. Mm. Extremely interesting. Uh, Because for people that are aware, uh, like you and me, we can pick up vibrations from all of that. And we can kind of get flashes. Which brings me to what you referenced in your book, um, I guess with your mother, right? She was part of the Order of the Northern Star, correct? Uh, she was a member of the Eastern Star. Uh, my father Eastern Star, was a, sorry. sorry. Yeah, my father was a Freemason. I'm a Freemason as well. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, she was a member of the Order of the Eastern Star, yes. Do you think that feminine energy transferred down to you? I think it's possible. Yeah. Um, I think it's certainly possible. Um, I hope that some of it did. Um, I miss my mother deeply. That's the second half of the book is called Maggie. That's for my mother. And psychedelics were originally a way to try to connect with her because I missed her so deeply. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt the oneness and I knew that she was part of the oneness. I've had several paranormal experiences regarding my mother, which aren't in the book, but probably should have been. They might be mentioned briefly, but I saw her ghost after right after she died standing at the end of our driveway, I was about 10 years old. I was turned 10 a month after she died. Um, And it was odd that she was standing because she was in a wheelchair my entire life. Interesting. Um, Later on, I was driving with my father. Um, This was probably six years ago. Now I had come back to New York for a visit and their wedding song came on the radio and it played and played all the way through town, which Unless there was no traffic, I don't recall, it shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. It got all the way to our destination, their wedding song. My dad didn't notice. Then we got done doing what we were doing. We had some homemade pancakes with my dad's homemade maple syrup over at a horse ranch. Oh, man. And got back in the car. Yeah, right? (laughs) Good syrup. I keep trying to get him to send me some, but he's worried it'll spoil in shipping. Not true. Not true. I really, really want some. Um, But um, we got back in the car and the song, I Can See Clearly Now the Rain Is Gone, came on, Mm -hmm. which was something my dad 
had her driving down to pick me up after she died. I was in D.C. when she died, and he was in wow. New York, so was she. So, And he saw that. The sun came out. There was a beautiful rainbow, and it was a relief after 20 years of sickness that my mother was sending a sign that everything was okay, and yeah. she could see clearly enough. She was blinder in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And she was sending a signal, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. And he told me about that many times. So the second we get back in the car, that song is on the radio. Oh, that's a clear sign. And we're driving through town. And again, it lasted longer than it should have, I think, unless there was no traffic. And it ended when we hit the the top of his driveway. (laughs) I mean, clearly that is something uh, significant. It's it's. It's something that should not should not have statistically occurred that occurred anyway, and I view it as a contact. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember I'm a Reiki master, um, so I am a little bit aware energetically. Um, the local group of Freemasons a long time ago asked me to join, even though they're not supposed to, because we're supposed to ask them. Um, I did turn them down, uh, but I've always had some kind of connection to the etheric um i remember when my grandmother died she was living in the same house as my parents and me and my sister um probably the next day we were all downstairs and we heard solid footsteps walking upstairs Mm -hmm. so we all knew what was going on my parent my dad more than anybody freaked out um But my mom and I knew, and it was interesting, too, that um, my mom was actually having a bit of a problem conceiving me. So she went to a Reiki practitioner and he, you know, did his mojo and then poof, here I am. So it's it's, it's kind of a a, a neat energetic path Mm. when you factor all of that in. I guess it is. If they um, if that particular group of so-called Freemason freemasons asked you to join i would venture to guess that they were a clandestine lodge and not part of a um a regular lodge of freemasons is what we would call it Um, interesting i don't know the difference yeah um there are regular lodges which are recognized by the local grand lodge in their in their jurisdiction they will not ask you to join you must go to that right yeah that i know um if anyone asks you to be a Freemason, it's, it's, it's likely a clandestine group. So someone who is taking Freemasonry on themselves and making their own group out of it, but we would not recognize them as Freemasons. Well, glad I didn't join them. <laughs> glad I dodged that one. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, on Long Island. Um, the Freemasons got into a bit of trouble a couple of times out here. Um, one, they were going through an initiation, and I guess somebody left live rounds in the chamber, and somebody actually got shot. Yeah, again, another, uh, yeah. another, um, another clandestine lodge. Um, right. There, I can't. I'm not asking you for answers. I was just well. I have story, to be. I know? have to be. I have to be careful. No, um, no, no! Don't do but, anything you don't want to do. Well, something that I can't do. Um, okay. um there's no uh there's no gun. I didn't <laughs> think no there was. <laughs> I thought that was I too say. Yeah, I thought that was <laughs> that that technology was too advanced for what was supposed to happen. Um so yeah. when I saw that I went, Oh, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
yeah, there are no there are no guns involved in 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 yeah. the in, in the craft, so to speak. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that must have been um, that must have been another clandestine lodge or someone being an idiot. Yeah, I, I would I, assume so. I would venture to guess. Do you have a few more minutes, or do you have to get going? I have all the time you need, my oh, friend. Oh, okay, perfect. So I wanted to get ask you about your mother. Um, there seems as though that there's a lot of connections to what you've experienced and your, and I guess on a certain level, uh, guilt of not being able to experience a timeline with your mother more than you already have. So did you eventually connect with her on another plane or I are you still seeking that? I, I am still seeking that desperately. Um, yeah. that's part of the reason why I wrote the second book, which became the second part of a broken mirror of memory is I have a desperate yearning for her not to be forgotten hmm. because, you know, you search her name online. She passed before the advent of the real internet. So, you know, there's no social media profiles. There's, if you do an internet search on her, she would not, she would appear to not exist except for a tombstone. Wow. And that drove me crazy, especially not knowing so much about her, you know, her hmm. having died, died when I was so young, I wanted a book to memorialize her this, so that she would not be forgotten, so that perhaps someday in a hundred years someone would pick up a copy of my book at a dusty old library and read about her, everything that I know about her, so that she might be in someone's thoughts in a century. Yeah. That's one of the, that's one of the reasons for the book, also to honor the fallen from Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting, though, just the, the grand dynamic be, between all that? Uh, before the camera was invented, that's really all we had of people, just memories. Right, right. Just memories and what's written down. Yeah, yeah. So that's extremely, extremely important for you. Um, have you heard of a woman, Dolores Cannon? I can't say that I have, no, but I'm going to look her up. Okay, this is something I really would, I would really push you to look up her work. So I'll give you a brief rundown. Uh, she... Uh, started to deal with people that had PTSD coming from Korea and Vietnam during the 60s and 70s. She worked with a lot of hypnotherapists, and eventually she de uh, developed her own technique of hypnotherapy. Uh, I think it's QHHT, Quantum Healing Hypnosis Therapy. I think that's what it stands for. Um, and she came out with a series of books, The Convoluted Universe. Hmm. And that is a fantastic fantastic series and it talks about past lives she changes the names of her patients but she goes through all of these experiences i'm mm -hmm. talking about living in egypt living in ireland uh to being a rock uh mm -hmm. to experiencing godlike power in creating the universes mm -hmm. i actually went through one of her sessions and it wasn't with her it was she's got a she she has died i think she died in 2014 but mm -hmm. she she basically licensed out her technique and they still do it um three hours of nonstop talking I, I i was so exhausted by the end of it um and it's funny the best way i explain it to people is your personality takes a back seat and you're actually listening to yourself talk mm but you're not controlling what you're saying. Um, very, very interesting stuff. Um, I, 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 um, 
I made references to pylons in ancient Egypt. I even made a reference to the Montauk project. So God only knows what the past life of me could have been, you know? <laughs> so I would take a look at that. Um, because that, that may, that may put you on a, on the right path, um, yeah, to make I that connection. I'll check it out. Um, because I really do want to make that connection. Um, yeah. that's, that's a striving point in my life. Oddly enough, I don't, I haven't felt, I felt the need before in brief moments to reconnect with some of the soldiers that died in Iraq, especially the ones that died in that mortar attack. Mm -hmm. I would like to psychically reconnect with them, but if I could psychically reconnect with my mother, then I know they're okay too. So that would, that would, that would be, that would be the main goal. Um, Which is interesting because you got into poetry Right after after all this, mm-hmm. I did yes, and the poem Odysseus at Entamenaguru. I don't know if I said that right. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how exactly to say it. I believe it's <laughs> Entamajur, but That's, I could be wrong. Sounds better to me. And you basically channel the Odyssey and the Iliad and all of that. Mm-hmm. So it seems as though you're on this constant quest to find either memories or connections with, with your past lives or your current life or your mother or how yeah. to overcome this PTSD. It's almost like you are one of these questing knights <laughs> still to this day, right? Yes. I'm on some kind of quest. I don't know. I don't know where my horse is. And I think <laughs> I'm eating coconuts together as I gallop instead of, Riding a mighty steed, but yes, I'm certainly on a quest of some kind. All right, nice Monty Python reference. I like that. Yes, yes, quite. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't run across any rabbits, have you? I have not. Thank okay, God. good. I have one in my D and D campaign that I'm hunting. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. I've never been into D and D, but um, <laughs> I, it's, I'm, I was more of a Warhammer person than anything nice. else. Nice. And then I got into advanced squad leaders, so you need a lawyer's degree to figure that one out. Yeah. So how did you get into poetry? Uh, I got into poetry to get my emotions down on paper, uh, to try to heal myself from Iraq and the other experiences in my life. And I wrote so much poetry and I wrote so much narrative that it eventually became a book. Mm. Yeah, you you scattered them all throughout your book. Mm. Which was the most impactful to you? Which one are you the most proud of? Oh, the poem I'm the most proud of. Can I um, um can I read it on the air with you? Absolutely, sure. Let I me... read one of yours at the beginning, so by all means. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Let me uh, let me get to it here. All right, so we got some time to fill. <laughs> as I as I um flip through. <laughs> as I get many text messages that I can't answer right now that I hope can't be heard on the podcast. Oh can. no, it's okay. I... It's all right. That's what live broadcasting is all about. Right, right. You, um, you, you reminded me of the love song of uh, J. Edgar Prufrock, if I'm remembering that correctly. I sent you that link. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that poem was written right after World War I, mm. and it had to do with PTSD and feeling lost. And if you take any real literature courses on poetry and things like that, they really bring that one out or any, any professor worth their salt would. Certainly. Um, I took a few literature classes at the Evergreen state college. Oh, good. They, uh, 
they focused on the classics and it was um it was very um it was very good of course i can't find that poem now that i'm looking for it and we will riff until i find no that's it. fine so, that's fine we i also I, I see here's the other thing ptsd i i won't even say it that way trying to acclimate yourself back into normal society is probably a Herculean effort. Just from what I've read um, by Ernst Hemingway, um, I think you've made reference to Kurt Vonnegut a few times. Um, you ever read Gravity's Rainbow? I can't say that I have, but I'm getting a lot of good book recommendations from this, which is wonderful. Oh, man. <laughs> or uh, how about this? Um, oh, what was that movie that Humphrey Bogart starred in? Um, uh, he was a destroyer captain and he was basically, um, his crew almost mutinied because they didn't have faith in his command decisions. Excellent book. The Kane mutiny. There we go. Excellent book. Excellent movie. I can't recommend that highly enough. Right. Um, and it really goes to display what people have to go through and what the effects are on them. Uh, during war, you know, um, you you went through. I, I can't even imagine what you've gone through. But th- even being on a destroyer in the Atlantic or the Pacific during World War II, I mean, you've got nowhere to go. No. If something happens, I mean, you're in the drink and you're stuck. Yeah, you're stuck there. You're 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 going to be there for a while, man. You you know you better you better get used to it. I. I can't imagine what those men on the destroyers must have gone through as they're being stalked by German U-boats. It it, it must have been terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've 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 certainly found the poem here. Oh, good. <laughs> All right, here we and, go. Uh, and it is called "Stuck in My Boots." I just can't put those men away in boxes. Sand whips by us, and it sand whips by us, and it feels like a cold night. It must be sixty-five degrees. We stand erect at perfect attention. Our shadows are carried in boxes. They are men who we might not have liked in life. We don't even know their names at present. But there we stand, our bodies aching from holding that same hand salute. The flag draped coffins, red, white, and blue. The chaplain offers a prayer. How the fuck did we get here? I feel stuck in my boots and I want out. That should be me in that box and I know it. I can never live it down. I can't move. So I'll just stand here saluting on this tarmac in the middle of the night for the rest of my life. That is, on a certain level, heartbreaking. Because it is this guilt that will not go away. Yet. It's been a long time. It hasn't. It hasn't. You know, it's ebbed and flowed like the tide, like all our emotions do, but it has not gone away. Hmm. Do you think you'll ever do you think you'll ever overcome it? I don't think I want to. Yeah. I think to I think to overcome it would in a sense do them a disservice. And on the other hand, to overcome it would be the best way to honor them. So it's it's a very It's a very convoluted situation. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like not being able to let go. It's almost like if you've let go, you feel like you've let them down. Exactly. Exactly. Even though they would probably want me to let go. Right. Right. If you, if you, if you let go, um, I think I say, well, I know I say somewhere in the book, um, of the men who had died in that helicopter crash, if we had passed in the airport, I could have left you. Wow. If we had simply passed in an airport terminal and said, hello, I could have left you. But because we passed the way we did, I can't leave you there. Hmm. That is something that I don't think I could ever comprehend. And... I don't think I'd ever want to comprehend something like that. I hope you, I hope you never have to. I hope yeah. we have peace in our world. Absolutely. That's my, that's my main goal is peace in our world. And how do you think your path is going to take you finding peace in the world? Because you seem to be a bit of a theologian. Hmm. Um, I'm going, um, I'm currently going for ordination in the Episcopal church. It's going to take mm-hmm. me four years, but I'm going to become an Episcopal priest um, to be able to work with the downtrodden, to be able to lift people up, to be able to be a voice for peace that has more credibility than it does now by simply being a former soldier. Yeah. Um, it's always strange when a soldier calls for peace, but when a monk or a priest does it, it's not so strange. So I figured the best thing I could do is either become a monk or a priest. And monk was out because of the celibacy thing. Um, so yeah, that, that's decided- a tough hill to climb. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's a tough hill to climb. So I decided that I would become an Episcopal priest because they don't have the celibacy rules and you can have a relationship and a, you know, and a sort of normal life while you're acting as a priest in that tradition. And it's something that I'm pursuing now wholeheartedly. And I applaud you for that. Um, I'm a bit of a theologian myself, and, and I've been saying over the past... I don't know, probably two years, especially during COVID, um, because I've been broadcasting in one form or another for probably six to seven years, eight years. I've done regular radio and things like that. And I've really started to question where the moral compass is. You know, and you point out in your book that there is a more than skyrocketing amount of corruption when it comes to these wars, how money is doled out, who does what and where and what's going on and how they're getting into these situations like Ukraine and all the rest. Mm-hmm. They're going to do what they do. So it then comes down to us on a personal level. Where can we start to regain the custodianship of society? And realign that moral compass. Especially. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, We do it by having our own revolution of consciousness. That's the only way. Each of us individually listening, hearing this podcast, no matter where you're hearing it, whether it's now or in a hundred years, I hope it's heard in a hundred years. Wouldn't that be something? That would be Um, great. (laughs) We need. uh, we need a revolution in consciousness. And I talk about COVID in the book. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, God forgive the survivors. We go on without those we have lost in war and plague. 8,000 dead in the war. One million have died of the plague. 
Still, we who have survived go on, sometimes battered, carrying one another towards a future that is still all too uncertain. We seek titles, accomplishments, fame, and fortune. What we must seek most of all is the, excuse me, what we seek most of all is the illusion of control. We want to feel as though we have control over our external circumstances, saying to ourselves, we are safe, while waiting to know if we are infected. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Ten thousand are dying a day. During the war, when the bombs came, we said silently to ourselves, or even muttered aloud, you shall not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Meanwhile, the pestilence still stalks the darkness. It's... They have us wrapped up in fear. Fear of... Fear of disease, fear of war, fear of each other. And that's what this Russia-Ukraine thing is. Yeah. It's, 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 it's one empire pitting one country against another empire, although I have no doubt that the Russians are at fault for this invasion in my mind. Hmm. Giving, them, giving them bombs, and especially cluster bombs, really, uh, really ticked me off. Okay. As well as should. As well yeah. as should. I, I'm on the opposite side of the spectrum hmm. on that one. I, I, could, uh, I have a problem giving money uh to nazi groups like azov yeah um, yeah there's a big problem with that as well and i remember them covering azov in the news before the ukraine war ever began and how bad azov was and this yep. and that and the other thing and yep. now all of a sudden they're heroes now yeah right right they're, they're on um social media there was a picture making the rounds of somebody from azov on leave i guess and sophia and, he, you know, he's got the swastika tattoos all over the place. He's got 88, you know, mm-hmm. so 88 being the the, uh, the eighth letter of the alphabet for mm-hmm. H. So Heil Hitler and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. You know, this is this is somebody that's supposed to be honored and revered. Really? <laughs> I, I, I think this is Operation Paperclip all over again. And I really wish it would, they would stop. <laughs> yeah, I really. I, I really wish the government's would stop killing other human beings. I don't care what the circumstance is. Yeah. I really, I really truly wish that we as a species would have a revolution of consciousness where, you know, like we, you know, like we decided, Hey, you know, enslaving other human beings isn't cool. Let's stop doing that. Yeah. That's, that's a real downer. (laughs) You know, that's a, that's a, that's a major downer, right? Yeah. We all agree now that that was a bad thing to do. I hope someday that, we come to that realization with war. Hey, man, this probably isn't a cool thing to do. Maybe we should stop doing it. We're actually maiming and killing our fellow human beings, no matter what the circumstance. Yeah. You know, we're actually harming other human beings. Maybe we should stop doing that. But apparently I'm the crazy one. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny. I, I forgot who said it, and I really wish I could remember it. Um it may have actually been David Icke, now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not anti-war, he's pro-peace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that is a significant distinction. Because yeah. that basically means if somebody fucks around, they're going to find out mm-hmm. what they fucked around with. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's saying, just leave me alone. Right. <laughs> you know, just right. don't be a dick. Leave me alone. Right. <laughs> right. So. And remember, folks, it's really easy not to be a dick. You can do it every day. Every day. Wake up it's really and say. Easy. <laughs> every morning. That's your that's your daily affirmation. Wake up. I will not be a dick. Right. I will and, just not be a dick today. And if I am going to be a dick, 
and I just can't hold it, I will hold it in and smile at that convenience <laughs> if I pick up my pack of cigarettes and just be a decent <laughs> human being. That's the, that's the basic message of what I want to get across is just be a, be a decent human being for the love of God. Treat others with love. Please. Right. It's so easy. And it's so much more beneficial to you than expressing hatred. It is. And it's funny that would require a huge revamp of society because think about everything that we see out there. It's everything is violence, video games, killing and bloodshed and all of that. Everything on the news is negative. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's a challenge in itself just to, just to rewire what you look at and what you bring to the fore in your, in your focus. Certainly it's, 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 we're a society that is allowing mass poverty. We're allowing drug addiction to take some of the best and brightest of us and turn us into rambling madmen on the street who are covered in our own filth and shit and piss. And those are our fellow human beings. I see it all the time on the West Coast. People who are houseless, who are suffering, and who some of them just have mental illness issues that are not being addressed. It's not even drugs. And we as a society have not determined that maybe we should help these people. We're just going to watch them destroy themselves, either by their own hand or something that's completely out of their control. We're going to sit here and watch and not do anything and say, oh, thank God that's not me. Oh, thank God. It's, 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 it's a difficult, controversial issue. But, you know, again, it's one of those things just like, hey, we don't enslave other human beings anymore, you know we don't own other people so we shouldn't we should evolve away from war and we should evolve towards a society that tries to take care of everyone that's why i love um, peter joseph and the zeitgeist movies so much mm-hmm. um because he talks about an alternative to our current state where it's all about competition and aggression and violence and he talks about bringing together a more automated and more compassionate compassionate society and i advocate for that in the book very very strongly i know you do i know you do have you ever heard of michael tillinger i have not i'm learning so much today all right that's a good deal then so michael tillinger gained notoriety for his book the slave species of god Hmm. and he comes from south africa and um i've met him a few times he came up with a movement called, uh, I think it's Ubuntu, uh, U-B-U-N-T-U. Um, and that talks about how to rewire society. So what you do is you bring everything back down to the local level. Mm. And you each town or each county basically takes an inventory of what they're good at. So it could be textiles, it could be uh, vegetables, it could be fruit, it could be law even, right? Because that's still needed. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is each town or municipality exchanges those goods free of charge in order to create a more barter-type society. Mm. Um, Very, very brilliant idea. I'm not quite sure how far he's gone. I haven't checked in lately. Um, but he's got little outposts all across the world, and it seems to have been taken off uh, in quite a few spots. I think that's something 
that we need more of. I, I think we need more of that community community on a global scale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's something in there, um, and I don't want to say for sure because I haven't read the book no, specifically, sure. um, but I've read a lot of books similar to it, especially at the Evergreen State College, where they almost glorify the primitive, mm-hmm. um, but we all like antibiotics and hospitals. Um, but I think that incorporating some of those ideas into a more just society would be interesting. That would. Um, I think that not having governments and having things done on a local level would be very interesting. We could certainly try it. Um, I think we could probably do better than we're doing right now as we can see the planet as being destroyed around us. Yeah. It's... Do is look outside and you can see that global industrial civilization is not necessarily the best idea for the planet or us or us as a species for that matter yeah i think there's some merit to those ideas but i also like hospitals so <laughs> yes. i don't you know I, yes. I i i'm a little i'm a little conflicted there no 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 you still need those those big big hospitals you still need those major um i i can't think of the word not municipality um but you still need things like uh construction efforts and and Mm -hmm. uh, water authorities and and whatever else um but the idea is to remove yourself from a central banking grid oh yes absolutely and (laughs) yes right so that's that's another thing that's extremely disturbing too um that it doesn't matter if you're east or west it doesn't matter if you're in the united states uk or eu or if you're in Russia or China, they're all moving to this digital currency. Even Putin today said, oh, I'm signing something into the law that allows for a digital ruble. Mm. Um, and then uh, I think this month we have Fed Now, which is the digital Federal Reserve dollar. I mean, what are we looking at here? We're looking at something interesting, and I think... Um... I think of Cyberpunk 2077. (laughs) I I think we're moving towards something very interesting. I can't say if it's going to be good or bad, but I think it's going to be interesting. Um, And I don't quite know how to stop it. I don't think we can. Yeah. Have you ever read the Illuminatus trilogy? I have not. You have so many good book recommendations. All right. Okay. So the Illuminatus trilogy, I also read as a teenager. And the best way I describe it, is an acid trip without the acid. Um, if you've ever read Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, um, mm-hmm. so they, two authors, Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson, wrote the Illuminatus trilogy. They were editors at Playboy during the 70s. And basically what they said was, we're going to take every single possible conspiracy theory we can think of and throw it into a 1,200-page book. We're going to spice it up with some esoteric knowledge and occult knowledge and numerology. And we're going to lie. We're going to be truthful. And we're just going to create this massive yarn. Hmm. Um, Extremely, extremely interesting book. And what this brings me to is that we have to ultimately find some way to empower ourselves. Right? Right. And it has to be done at the local level, whether that's by yourself or with your family or your friends or whatever. 
So in your experience, as we wrap up here, what are maybe, I don't know, two or three things that people can do that would allow them to brighten their day and rewire how they are looking at the world. And I want you to base that answer or those answers, I should say, if we're talking about two or three of them, uh, on your experiences, one in Iraq, two with your psychedelic experiences and three with your theologian experiences too. I would say the number one thing we can do is to show compassion upon our fellow human beings. We can show compassion upon our fellow human beings simply by being nice, simply by smiling, simply by showing love and concern and care for one another and have it be genuine. If you don't feel that you have that, then it's something you'll need to cultivate, but that's okay because we all have it deep down inside of us, but it gets scabbed over by the bitterness and by just the general sense of loss that we all experience in this um, I hate this term, but late stage capitalism, post-apocalyptic industrial society we find ourselves in. Wow. Um, and um, second, I would say, uh, extend that compassion to all sentient beings, even bugs and spiders. Yes. You know, the Buddha said that every single sentient being that exists right now has existed with us through through countless past lives and that every being that exists has at one time or another been our mother. So we must show those sentient beings the same compassion we would show our own mother. I think that we could extend it to that. And then thirdly, we could extend that compassion to the earth and the universe around us. And we could say, we care for this earth and we care for our environment and we want it to prosper and do well for the benefit of all sentient beings we have to adopt a what's called in buddhism a bodhisattva attitude we have to try to develop compassion for all sentient beings for humans for all sentient beings and to the earth and the universe itself because it's all us out there just like george carlin said there's nothing out there that needs solace seeking it's all us we're all from the center of a star. Every single one of us made up from atoms from a center of a star. Even my guitar sitting here or a cigarette butt on the street in Buffalo. We're all made yeah. up of atoms from the center of a star. There's nothing out there but us. And therefore, the universe is one and we must show compassion for it and everything in it if we want to have that revolution of consciousness. I think that's fantastic advice. Joe, thank you so much. For joining me here on the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels. Next time, if you feel like it, if you if you want to join me again, we'll talk about theology. I would be, I would be thrilled. And folks, please go out and get the Broken Mirror of Memory. Yes, um, I spent Joe. ten years of my life writing it. I poured my Perfect. heart and soul into it, and I, you know, I'm not looking to make a lot of money off of this book. I'm looking to get the story out there. Because it may help you, it may inspire you, it may make you angry, it may make you hate me, but I know for a fact it'll make you think. Joe, where can people find you on social media and where can they buy your book? You can follow me on Twitter at JoeSoul2. 
That's at Joe Soul 2. I'll be happy to speak with anyone. Um, and you can find the book on Amazon. It's The Broken Mirror of Memory, Iraq and Other Tales. But if you type in The Broken Mirror of Memory, you'll most likely get it. <clears throat> and feel free to follow me on socials. Feel free to message me. Um, and let me know what you think of the book, good, bad, or otherwise. I'm happy to talk to anyone. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Joe, thank you very much. It has been an absolute pleasure. This has been the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels. And you know what to do. Like me, find me, share me, especially this podcast, the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels on all of your podcasting platforms and also the Last Call Caravan on Twitter. Well, I will be posting this podcast and also links to Joe's book and his profile. Thank you very much, Joe. It has been a pleasure. The pleasure is mine, Chris. Thank you.